Well, good morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here as well. We're kicking off a brand new series, Imperfect Families. And uh, our hope really is that in this teaching series, that you will find encouragement to glorify God whatever your family circumstance currently is, whether you're married or divorced or single or widowed, whether you are uh, you know have children or whether you're children uh, who have parents or you don't have parents. Um, we just believe that the principles that we're teaching are so important because they apply to all of our relationships. And we hope that they help you uh, bring glory to God in your living. Um, even if you don't follow Jesus, those people who, who maybe don't follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, we believe that if if we would live into these principles a little bit, that your life is actually maybe going to improve uh, a little bit. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, uh, we're just reminded that these are some of the principles that God gives to us to be able to bring glory to him and his family. Um, and so we're encouraged to live into that. And if also, if also we want to, in this series, kind of encourage us to kind of be able to be aware of some of the ditches that um, our lives and our, our sin nature, our culture, our stories can kind of lead us into from time to time. So we can uh, recognize those, stay out of those ditches, empower you to, to live into God more fully, to avoid those ditches. And, um, and finally, we just want to remind you that whatever your situation is right now, God is with you. God is with you in your current circumstances. So that's kind of, these are the objectives of our teaching. And I just want to start this morning with one really simple, but I think powerful truth, a biblical and profound truth, and that's this. There are no perfect families. Would you say that with me? There are no perfect families. Doesn't that feel good to say that? I mean, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard to grasp, but we just came out of this, uh, the Christmas letter season, like where, where we spend all this time comparing our kind of backstage lives to all of our friends and families, amazing highlight reels, right? I mean, we read stories about, you know, Ben got a full scholarship to the U and, and Sam's the captain of her state volleyball team and little Isaiah, he's, he's the first chair in the fourth grade state wind symphony, right? And, and we just had a magnificent trip last March to Disneyland. I'm sitting here thinking about my own family and thinking, let's see, my, my daughter dyed her hair purple three times last year and got her nose pierced. Uh, my son goes to the number one party school in the country. And, um, and our youngest, Eli, it's like, we just hope he brings his lunchbox home from school, right? That's, that's like, that's a good day. At least he does still enjoy Disney Channel from time to time. So we have that kind of going for us. But it's not just Christmas letters where we compare ourselves. I mean, Facebook, for a lot of people, comparing ourselves to our more successful friends and family, or walking into church even on a Sunday morning, and you see people smiling, and you have these pleasant conversations, and we build up this idea that other families have it all together, and we don't see what's going on in their behind-the-scenes lives, but we know full well what's going on in our backstage lives, and sometimes we just feel like we fall short, and I just want to remind you, there are no perfect families. And I said, I think that this is biblical. I do believe this is biblical. When we look at the Bible, uh, as we read the Old Testament especially, we don't see examples of perfect families. In fact, it's hard to find examples of good families. The whole family thing kind of falls apart rather quickly. Cain murders Abel, right? We see that right away. I I doubt that that probably made the Christmas letter, by the way. (laughs) Things are great this year, creation, all this stuff. Oh, by the way, Cain murdered Abel. Probably not in the latter. You look at Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers. Abraham and Sarah. Sarah encourages Abraham to get with her maid so she can have a son. And then later she despises this boy and kicks him out of the family. We look at David's life. One word, Bathsheba, right? Bathsheba, 
right? And we know that that didn't make the Christmas letter. It was more like, hey, we won some battles. Take a look at this new book that David just published. Great songs, great poetry. You're going to love it. Merry Christmas. Blessings. We should actually be feeling pretty good about our families as we read the Old Testament. So then we go to the New Testament and we look for examples there. And we don't find many examples of good families in the New Testament either. What we do find instead is some instructions about how families should live together. And that's kind of what we're going to look at here this morning, specifically how Paul encourages husbands and wives to live together and behave towards one another in the, in the context of marriage. And we know Paul and Peter write a lot of instructions for people living in households throughout the New Testament. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 5, actually, which is probably one of the best summaries of all of these teachings. This is Paul's familiar writing to the church in Ephesus, to church members regarding husbands and wives. And this is what he says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own bodies. Paul goes on and says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. and The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Of course, I'm talking about Christ and the church. I get to do a lot of weddings uh, here at Orchard Church. I love to do weddings. I want to tell you, though, if there's one passage that um, wives come to me, uh, you know, fiancés, the wives, or, or even the couples come to me and say, um, this is one passage we would like you to avoid or not include in the ceremony. It's this passage. And I get that request a lot. And, and it's like, we don't like this passage, right? I mean, it's, it's, isn't it outdated? Isn't it like patriarchal and, and oppressive? I mean, that's what our culture tells us about this passage. And different churches offer different uh, interpretations of this passage, and that further kind of confuses us in this matter. And as I was preparing to teach this, I was thinking about my own marriage with with my wife, Cindy, 22 years. And I was thinking, you know, we just don't really look like this a lot of times. And I was thinking, I'm not sure I'm qualified to teach this. First off, the whole wives submit to your husband's thing. I've been trying for 22 years to get my wife to go to the bathroom and close the door she just leaves the door open all the time. She refuses to submit to me on that. In fact, our, our master bed doesn't even have a door anymore. I don't know how that happened. I'm sure God has something greater in mind for our marriage. Seriously. But, but what does it mean, wives submit to your husbands and, and the husband is the head? Does this mean like the husband, I'm supposed to make all of the decisions? Or what decisions am I supposed to make? What input? When, when do I seek her input? Is it the financial decisions or the decisions on discipline? What if I don't want to make the decisions? And do I get veto power over anything that she decides that that I'm not in agreement with? I just want to say this is not how Cindy and I have operated in our marriage. In fact, the less we have emphasized some of these complementarian kinds of of interpretations of of male headship and, and, and submission, the more enjoyable our marriage has been. 
And at the same time, the more we've kind of lived into this egalitarian approach to marriage, where we share responsibility, where we make some decisions together, uh, where, we're, where we're equal in this, the more tension and insecurity I feel at times around some Christian people in some churches. There's a tension here between what's ideal and what's real. Does this mean that Cindy and I are outside of God's will somehow? And that's only half of the problem for us. Because Paul actually says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. In this same way, Jeff, you should love Cindy. So I brought in this, this towel ring as an example of just how well that's going in our lives right now. Uh, about a year and a half ago, our, uh, we had some uh, pipes in our walls go bad, and we had to tear out our whole bathroom. Had to gut it and start over and rebuild the bathroom. And so this was 18 months ago, and uh, we finished the project, and uh, my wife bought this tolerant and said, hey, will you put this on the new vanity? Sure, sure, I'll do that. That was uh, 18 months ago. This is that towel ring. It's here with me today. It's not on the vanity. It's here with me. Um, I know that in the last 18 months, uh, I've watched a little bit of football, uh, I've gone running on some Sunday afternoons. I've probably even taken some naps. And yet here, this thing... I've walked by this thing probably 800 times just sitting right out there, left, you know, nice, convenient, tactical location where I'd see it every time I walk up down the stairs. And yet, here it is. There's a tension between the ideal and what's real in our marriage. This tension can come from the church, but it can also come from the world. You hear people all the time saying... You know, I thought that uh, getting married, it would, I'd just be happy all the time, that it would, it would make me happy, or it would solve all our problems. Or you hear people say, I really, co- kids cover your ears, and you know, you hear people say, I thought we'd have more sex in our marriage, right? There's a tension between the ideal and the real. And then also life circumstances. I've talked to a lot of people who are just playing in survival mode in their marriages. They're raising kids and they're juggling their careers and other activities. Um, maybe they have a, a spouse who's battling some serious health concerns, physical or mental health concerns. Maybe somebody's lost a job. The kids have moved home. There's all kinds of circumstances that affect what is real and what our ideal is. And there's a tension here, and it can feel a little bit overwhelming. In fact, even if your marriage is relatively good, it can feel like you're short. I, 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 you know, knowing all of this as I was preparing, I had to ask my wife. I just said, we're laying in bed together one night. I said, all right, rate our marriage. And she laughs. <laughs> Not a good start. <laughs> He said, well, you want to give it a number? I said, well, you know, you do this with your patients all the time. You ask them to describe their pain. Maybe you want to give the level of pain, you know, a smiley face or, uh, or a frown. And she says, uh, eight or a nine. It's like, eight or nine, great, end of discussion. We don't need to talk anymore. I'm going to bed, right? I mean, it was really, really good. And at the same time, when I woke up this morning, I still felt this tension. Because we're not in crisis right now. We don't have, we're not in survival mode like other people I know. Our, our marriage should be relatively high. In fact, it should probably be a 10. And I think God wants our marriage to be 11. See, I believe that God wants more for our marriages than we do. And he offers us, he, he enters into our real and offers us his presence and his plan to help us move from our real towards his ideal. God establishes this ideal for marriage right from the very beginning. Way back in the book of Genesis, we witness the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. The author tells us, he says, The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. So he creates from Adam the perfect helper. And the Hebrew word for helper is azer, and it means strong helper. 
It's most often a word that's used to describe God and his relationship with Israel and implies that the woman is absolutely necessary for the completion of the man. She's not like a junior assistant here, but she's full-fledged partner. She's strong and she solves Adam's problem of being alone. Man being alone simply did not reflect the truest nature of God who lives in community in perfect harmonies, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he takes a rib out of Adam and he creates woman to complete this image of humankind. And in so doing, he develops and creates, establishes the first marriage. He brings Eve to Adam, just like the father, a father walking his daughter down the aisle to present to her husband. And he presents this beautiful gift to Adam and, and Adam right away what's his reaction right it's whoa man right that's where the name comes from. we've heard from that we've heard that before Adam says this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh Adam recognizes that Eve is a part of her of him she was taken from him and now they're being rejoined together as one flesh and it says the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed which is English for They were naked and not ashamed. (laughs) That's a good thing. They were utterly exposed before God and each other. Nothing to hide. Perfect harmony and intimacy. Life was really, really good. In fact, life was perfect. God had created humankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and everything in it. God creates the first marriage and he tells the couple, rule together over creation and harmony. Make lots of babies. And then God provides everything they need and he proclaims, it is very good. This is the ideal. Life was perfect. It's not a matter of who's in charge, but together, this couple reflecting God's image. That's the original design of marriage before the fall. A man, a woman, living as one flesh in a lasting, intimate relationship, right? Rooted in covenant commitment with God and each other, demonstrating God's love for his creation, his care for all of his creation. But we should note that Paul does call this a profound mystery. There is no other relationship like this. In fact, Paul's going to turn to a metaphor, right? He's going to turn to the relationship between Christ and the church, to lift up this glorious ideal of marriage. Just as Christ establishes and is the head over the church, it's God who establishes marriage. He designs it. He's the head over the marriage. Far too often, we just have way too low a view of what marriage is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer captures this idea so beautifully, so powerfully. He says this, he says, In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Marriage is more than something personal. It's a status. It's an office. You are called to represent Christ's love in your marriage. And just to spare you the suspense, you will fail. I mean, how long did it take Adam and Eve to to fail at this, right? happened really quick. They blew it. They exchanged what God wanted for them for what they wanted for them in their marriage. The whole thing comes crashing down. We've been doing the same thing ever since. I think about my own marriage and how often I just settle for what's best for me in the marriage. 
Right? When I'm having a really good day, I might consider what's best for Cindy or maybe what's best for us. But how often do we ask, what does God's best look like in our marriages? Okay, so so far we haven't actually eased that tension between the real and the ideal here, right? We simply established that God wants more for our marriages than what you do. He wants to show the world this sacrificial, covenant-keeping love and what it looks like, what his love for us actually looks like. But if this is true, wouldn't it stand to reason that God wants to be intimately, personally involved daily in our marriages to paint this picture? Wouldn't it mean that he'd be willing to move heaven and earth to give us all that we need so that he can demonstrate to others what his goodness and grace and faithfulness looks like? God wants more for your marriage than you do. So he offers his presence and his plan to help meet us in our real and move us towards his ideal. This is actually the gospel. This is what we see in Jesus. Jesus doesn't actually ever lower the ideal, what God's ideal is. He doesn't lower it to make it more accessible to us. And he certainly doesn't do that with marriage. He actually raises the ideal, Jesus does, right, in, in all areas of our lives. And then knowing that it's not good for man to be alone, knowing that we would never achieve this ideal on our own, what does Jesus do? He enters into our mess. He says, take my hand. He says, marry me. Let me show you what love looks like. And then he lays his life down for us to defeat the power, the curse of sin, even, even the curse that corrupted the original design of marriage. He pours out every spiritual blessing, his grace, his forgiveness. He guarantees our safe arrival in heaven. He gives us a spirit of power and of hope and of self-discipline and of love to lead us into his ideal. Married, single, divorced, widowed, fatherless, motherless, whatever your situation. This is God's truth. This is what God wants for you. He wants more for your life than you do. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Wouldn't it be good just right now, wherever you're at, to just just take that to Him and just ask Him to reveal what that is in your life, to, to reveal Himself to you in the way that you need Him most right now. See, this is the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is the stuff he's been saying to them and encouraging them with up to this point. It leads Paul to urge the members of the church in Ephesus to live a life worthy of the call that they've received. And this is what he says it looks like in the home. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Paul is quickly moving from this, this idea of mutual submission in all relationships to specific instruction for wives. So let's deal with, with the instruction for wives first. And here's what I want us to remember. This was not new news for anybody, right? Husbands had all the power in relationships. They had all the privilege. They already had all the responsibility in the household in Paul's day and age. It had been, been this way for centuries, perhaps forever. There's even a Roman law that protected a man's authority over his household as being critical to the success of society. Women had no power to change this. So Paul's not setting up some new household structure, nor does he kind of uh, lay it aside or lay a burden on, on Christians to, 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 uh, to change it. The early church had plenty of its own problems, its own challenges and issues. Instead, the passage, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to uh, teach wives and to bring Jesus into their relationship, teach husbands what it looks like to bring Jesus into their relationship. 
And how he approaches it with wives is by providing them with a new motivation and a new purpose in their call. Paul says, wives, don't submit to your husbands because the culture demands it. Don't submit to your husbands because your husband demands it. Don't submit to your husbands even because your husbands deserve it. But do it as an outpouring of your desire to love and serve and worship your God. This is how you become an azer, a strong help and encouragement to your husband and to live into God's best for your marriage. Of course, that smacks right up against our culture, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know if any of you watch UFC, but our whole idea of submission is it's the weaker one who submits. The whole idea in ultimate fighting is to get the other person to tap out, right? And then that means you're weaker or you're inferior. But in Jesus, we see a completely different model of what it means to submit, right? We see the one with all of the strength and all of the power take initiative and enter in and lay that all aside for the benefit of us. Being in the very nature of God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid down his life and he took a role of a servant and became obedient, even to the point of death. Paul points to Jesus and says, remember what Jesus said, the greatest among you is the one who serves. And he says, wives, be great. Serve your husbands. Submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. Now, maybe that wasn't the good news that uh, the wives were looking for in that day. Maybe it's not the good news that you came to hear today. But um, uh, I just want to encourage you to hang on because it's the husband's turn now. And Paul actually has twice as many words to say to husbands. And he uses these words to actually radically shift the way that early Christian men viewed their role as husbands in their marriages how they were called to live. And he introduces this Christ-centered model of mutual submission between husbands and wives. And it still is radical today. And you look at the verses 21 and 22 and say, yeah, but Jeff, you know, Paul never says to husbands, submit to your wives. That's a call for the wife. So how can you say this is about mutual submission? In the original Greek, what happens is the verb submit appears only once between these two verses. That, that word submit is actually shared by these two verses. So this is how, how Paul's readers would have understood it, how they would have heard this, this uh, scripture. They would have heard it read like this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. They would have understood Paul's moving from a general call in all of our relationships to submit to one another to a specific call in the marriage. This idea that men and women could actually live together equally, they were called to mutual submission, was brand new. This was radical stuff, brand new idea, never before been taught anywhere. And Paul says this, and he says, now let me tell you how it looks for the wife, and let me tell you how it looks for the husband. And here Paul fleshes it out for men. He begins by providing this metaphor of marriage, right? He says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So Cindy and I got married 22 years ago, as I said, our wedding day, uh, Looked a lot younger back then. Um, and he says, this is actually what happened then when we got married. Another slide. My head, her body, right? It's kind of disturbing. Uh, God wants it to go much better than this, right? And so he gives us these instructions. He goes, what happens if we're not on the same page, right? Bad things can happen if we're not on the same page. And this is why God hates divorce, because when you pull this apart, Right? It, it can just get really ugly. We had some other pictures where it can show you how disturbing it can actually get. And it just gets worse and worse as, as you go on. But Paul's instructions at the head is very important because he wants this to go very well. So Paul says, husbands, as the head, love your wives. 
Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and radiant, love your wife as you love your own body. Paul doesn't say to husbands, lead your wives. But he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And Jesus sacrificially loves us by pouring out all his power, all his advantage, all his privilege, all his assets for our benefit. Husbands, do the same. Lay your life down for your wives. Put her interests in the interest of your relationship ahead of your own. There's no greater love than this, than to lay down your life for another. The principle for husbands is leverage all of your assets, all of your power, all of your advantage for the benefit of your wife. In fact, do it for the benefit of your marriage, for the benefit of your kids, for your whole household, in all of your relationships. And demand nothing in return. And then watch as those around you become more holy and more radiant and more blameless, more beautiful, as God intends them to be. Again, I don't believe Paul is establishing a new uh, structure. He's not trying to dismantle one either. Instead, he urges those who follow Jesus to transform their relationships by being more fully conformed to the image of God himself who lives in perfect harmony with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit where the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. His name will be exalted above all others. And Jesus says, my Father is the greatest. I don't do anything without hearing from my Father. And the Spirit says, I live to exalt Jesus and the Father. This mutual submission, lifting each other up over and over again, higher and higher. That's God's ideal. That's his best for us. That's where his infinite joy is discovered and found. It's not so much in how we lead, but in how we love. And love always looks to give itself to others. Real quick, I love Andy Stanley's application of this and what it can look like in practice. He says, what if we were to ask one simple question? The question is this. What do we begin regularly asking? How can I help you? How can I leverage my time, my assets, my resources for your benefit? What can I do to help you? Husbands, what would happen if you took the initiative as Christ did and asked this of your wives once a day? Okay, maybe once a week. Once a month, right? I mean, what would that look like? How would that change? What if we actually did this with our kids, too, in other relationships? I actually tried this, okay? I was preparing, so I got to try this. So my son was home over break. And uh, he was, had the stomach flu one day. And I'm walking by his door and I'm here, oh, he's in the room. And so I go, oh, shoot. So I knock on the door and I go, hey, hey, bud, how you doing? Oh, and I go, I go uh, you, do you need anything? How, how, can, how can I help? And he goes, well, you can come in. Uh, I wasn't exactly thinking I'd come in. I was like, you know, can I slide something under the door or something? You know, I, you know, you know, no, let me know if you need it. That's how it, I mean, that's how far my reel is from God's ideal. Because I'm like, and isn't that what happens when we ask or why we don't ask the question? We're afraid like we're going to be asked to do too much. Like it's going to be too demanding. It's the cost is going to be way too high. I don't want to go in there and catch the flu. Right? I don't want to be put out. I, I've got too much going on. I can't afford to get sick. Right? Talking to other friends, it's the same thing with our wives and in our relationships. Life is so busy. Work and kids, activities, homework. We're in survival mode. I'm just going to get by. I remember those days, right? My wife would say, hey, we should really talk. And I'm just thinking, no, we should just really have sex. Right? And then you, all of a sudden you get some time alone and you don't do either one. You just kind of go off into your own spaces and do your own thing. And you think, you know, that's okay. I don't really have the time and energy to change this pattern right now. And, and I'm just, it's just not going to be good. I can survive a little bit longer. I can, I can hold this thing out a little bit longer. I, 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 me, me, me. Christ 
Paul says, Christ, Christ, Christ. Do it out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And 95% of the time what we find is this isn't going to kill you. Right? We stop and ask the question, this isn't going to actually crush us. Most often it's like a simple thing that we can do to move our relationships forward. You know, How can I help you? Well, maybe you could watch the kids for a little bit so I can take a shower this morning. Right? How can I help you? Well, maybe you could set work aside a little bit we could go for a 15-minute walk around the block. How can I help you? Well, you know, maybe you can put the towel rack on the vanity this afternoon. <laughs> I know what I'm doing, right? Maybe it's a, you know, Cindy and I found it's a simple rub on the shoulders. Even just, just power in just asking the question. There's huge power in that. And then for others of us, we just know that this is going to cost something. This is going to be extremely costly. It's going to feel like, it's, like you're laying down your life, like you are dying. It's just going to feel really big and heavy because of your current situations. There's some really hard stuff. And maybe your spouse isn't in a position to like return the favor or to do this for you. So it's all one-sided. Maybe, maybe they won't return it. And so it's all one-sided. And it's going to cost you a lot. I just want to encourage you. right? God is with you. He's walking with you. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, God walks with us. Even in the wilderness, when we're, when we're starving and we're thirsty, God prepares this banquet table for us right in the middle of that and invites us, come and eat. Be still. Know that I am God. God wants to help you with this, and so do we. And I know Dave has a great teaching coming up in this series. He's going to talk more about that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and uh, we'll continue to worship. Father, so often our idea, or our real, it just falls way short of your ideal. And, and what happens, uh, I know in my marriage, is then I just start to feel bad about it, and I start to feel guilty or shame, instead of experiencing the abundance you intend for us to have in our marriages and in our homes. Father, help us to, to remember, Lord, this ideal is something that's good for us, that you want to give to us. It's a gift and a blessing. Uh, Lord, help us to remember that your spirit is with us, giving us strength and guidance, your presence to live into this beautiful plan that you've laid out to discover the full joy and abundance of marriage that you have for each one of us. Give us the courage to ask each other, once a a month even, how can I help you? That's in your name we pray. Amen.